Hello, I am your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Jason Stouffer, general partner at Maveron. Maveron is a premier consumer-focused fund that invests in seed and Series A companies that empower consumers to live on their terms. Jason was an early board member at Zulily. He sourced Maveron's investments in and currently serves on the boards of General Assembly, Julep, Lively, and Dolls Kill. He also led several of Maveron's most promising seed investments, including Course Hero, Everlane, and Peach. It was a blast having Jason on, and I really appreciated the conversation. So without further ado, here's Jason. Jason, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. No, it's been it's an absolute pleasure. So, what attracted you to startups, technology, and venture capital in the first place? Well, it's been a windy path. Uh, I didn't grow up in the valley. My dad was a teacher in Detroit. Uh, I went to Michigan under the hope that I'd become a journalist. This is in the late '90s. So, I mean, to flash forward back, Clinton was president. Cold War was over. Uh, the world, as I looked at becoming a journalist, I, I said, you know, what is there really to write about? And the only thing to write about was what was going on in Silicon Valley. And rather than writing about it, I said, why don't I move out there and be a part of it? So I got in the U-Haul with my father and uh, moved to Silicon Valley and um, worked in a small boutique venture firm called Spinnaker Ventures at the time. And that really got me hooked on uh, having a lens into companies that are changing the fabric of society and also seeing these companies move from a dream into uh, becoming an important part of people's lives. When you became a venture capitalist, were you ever tempted to work with companies on and, and invest in companies on the enterprise side? Or what attracted you uh, specifically to consumer? So, I mean, let's, let's look at back at college First, when I was in college in the 90s, I, you know, I called my parents once a week and we had an agreed upon time for me to be in my dorm on Sundays to get their phone call. Um, so food delivery was solely by a telephone. Taxi dispatchers notoriously might or might not dispatch a taxi to you and, and travel was booked. I mean, online, but people still used agents on occasion. So the world's changed a ton since then. And I think technology has really changed the fabric of society. So, you know, I, I think through uh, what's exciting to me as a consumer is what's going on in consumers' lives. Um, it's exciting to invest in businesses like Everlane when we, when, you know, when I first invested in their seed round, uh, they were just selling t-shirts online at transparent prices. So it's been incredibly satisfying to see that business and others were involved in really move towards ubiquity and really enable society to see the emergence of these new value-based brands. So when I think through uh, the appeal of enterprise SaaS as a way to make money, I can understand that. There's predictable revenue. Uh, you're tackling a market opportunity that's well-defined, but I'm much more compelled personally to invest in brands that win people's hearts and minds. And also, congratulations on Everlane. Uh, I was reading past couple of days about how they cut out 75% of their uh, virgin plastics in their supply chain, which is just incredible. You know, one of our, one of our values at Maverick is profit and purpose. And I think what you're seeing, not just for, you're seeing this with investing firms where um, a lot of our investors are asking, what kinds of companies are you putting your money into? 
And you see this at companies where if you don't have a values orientation, it's hard to attract employees because if growth is religion, the minute growth slows down, there's nothing to keep people there. If the religion instead is based upon a value system, it becomes much more powerful to, uh, you know, maintain employees through good times and bad. Not to mention it's something that customers view as table stakes these days. Exactly. Being purpose-driven is huge for, for consumers nowadays. I saw a YouTube video where you spoke about how one of, one of the early mistakes in your career is putting too much value on early momentum. How should founders of consumer companies think about momentum? One of my pet peeves these days is a seed deck that's focused too much on just looking at early KPIs. I mean, looking at lifetime value and acquisition costs when you're spending $500 a day or some small amount on paid marketing, it doesn't give a lot of signal. I mean, one thing's really certain, it's at a seed stage, more 99 times out of 100, your product or service is going to change substantially from the seed stage onward. So, you know, the most important thing early on is understanding, one, I mean, what is resonating with your early audience and using them. So I think, you know, it's not like you push a brand out to a consumer these days. It's kind of more of a co-creation process, and I think you need to respect that. And secondly, it's uh, understanding and how to define and take advantage of the market opportunity that's out there. So I think everything you do early on should be in service of those foundational building blocks. Those are great points. What makes investing in consumer companies or evaluating consumer companies difficult? Uh, I think a lot of technology investors put a, uh, always want to understand what kind of IP or technology is being built as a differentiator. I think the hard thing with uh, consumer type businesses is it's not about building differentiated technology most of the time. It's about winning consumers' hearts and minds and building differentiated consumer experiences. So, you know, it's hard to, uh, I, I, the hardest thing about looking at a, a consumer company, especially early, when we're, we're investing two to eight million for, 15 to 20% of a company and leading a series A or a seed or whatever you call a round these days. And uh, at that stage, what you're really assessing is two things. One is, uh, is this a market where the tectonic plates are moving in a way where there's an opportunity for an important consumer brand to emerge? And secondly, why is this particular founder advantaged in taking advantage of that opportunity? It's um, a lot harder to assess those things because a lot more is intuitive than uh, assessing the opportunity for you know a new type of, of SaaS business. In order for you to consider a company at those stages, do they need to have product market fit? And how do you how do you think about product market fit? I think some of our best investments have been um, prior to launch. Uh, Zulily, we backed it on a napkin. Uh, we led the seed in the Series A. On Common, we backed it on a PowerPoint, and we think it's one of the highest potential real estate businesses out there today. We invested in a, a body, uh, a clean body brand called Necessaire last year, once again, pre-launch. So I think for us, there's three things we look at. One is, does in the case of Zulily, the founders had previously started Blue Nile and, and built it into a public company. And uh, yeah, I think we look at the founders and do they have a proven history of value creation? I think the second piece we look at is uh, the market. and Do we have deep belief that this market is going to be an area code where there's venture scale outcomes? 
And do we believe that the founder is the right founder for those markets? So I think the more certainty we have uh, on those factors, the more willing we are to forego traction. If it's a founder without a history of value creation where we don't have a pre-existing relationship and it's a market we don't have intimate point of view on, then at that point, we're looking uh, to understand traction and understand how customers interact with the product in the wild and is there a culture and a passion there. So I think it's, uh, it's really a sliding scale for us based on those factors. I also saw that you spoke about mediocre markets and how you're a fan of Warren Buffett's quote, when a great team meets a mediocre market, only the market maintains its reputation. So would you mind providing some examples or characteristics of a mediocre market or how you think about markets versus an attractive market and maybe some insights on how entrepreneurs should think about markets when they're uh, thinking about businesses to start? Sure. I think the the important thing to think through is where are there really barriers to entry and then kind of what's the compellingness of the market itself kind of once you've established a market position. So I can ground that on two examples from our portfolio. First is Course Hero, which is it's the world's largest educational marketplace. So it's full of practice exams and lecture notes from colleges globally. So over time, Course Heroes accumulated a trove of over 30 million documents by allowing students to access materials in kind of one of two ways. Either you upload your own documents and you could access all the others or you pay monthly. So to start from scratch, a marketplace which has materials from every class imaginable, think organic chemistry from Syracuse University, tied particular, tied to each lecturer and each textbook, it'd be almost impossible. So this is a company that built an incredibly profitable, strong growth business because their competitive advantage is, is almost impenetrable. And I compare that to another portfolio company in education of ours called General Assembly. And uh, General Assembly was really the first tech boot camp. It had incredible press fanfare out of the out of the gate, and we backed the Series A. So, you know, as General Assembly launched campuses across the country and globally, they found there were very few advantages to national scale. It took an engineer in a room to start a boot camp, and anyone could hang a shingle. So, as General Assembly thought about, you know, how do we take advantage of this brand that we built? What was clear is that the equity value creation wasn't going to come from the consumer business because it was just too easy to compete. So what they did have with the scale and capabilities was the ability to build an enterprise business focused on selling training and digital skills to Fortune 1000 companies. So they had to kind of pivot away from their initial market because it wasn't strong sources of competitive. Uh, there weren't strong ways to make economic profit in that initial market and figure out another way to take advantage of the brand that they built. And it led to a successful outcome in selling the company to a DECA. And there's a lot of business strategy. And I think early on with founders, it's very easy to get tied up with, you know, what were my monthly sales? I think it's really important to think through the business strategy behind it and kind of understand, is there the ability to make economic profit in the market? And how are we going to craft a strategy to enable us to do so? I really appreciate you sharing that General Assembly example. You've been investing in Maveron for now over 10 years. What's changed in how you invest in your learnings throughout the years? So I'm a pretty analytical guy by background. So early on, I used to think you could, you could you know, essentially analyze a lot about a business you know, through the numbers. So I was very focused on the unit economics. And what I found over time, as we spoke about earlier, that early unit economics are often a fallacy and provide you know, signal that's not actually signal. So I pivoted entirely and said, you know, what's 
quite clear is that when we back great people, we've been more likely to have strong venture scale outcomes and pivoted to focusing entirely on the people. That too was wrong because just because a founder is strong doesn't necessarily mean they are tackling a market with their advantage or a market where there's opportunity to create a venture return. So today, my focus really is on founders, and we could talk later if you'd like on kind of how we evaluate founders, and then understanding the market itself. So, you know, I think if, if for an early stage investor, there's a, there's a number of things you look at, people, market, product, traction. I think if you check all those buckets, you're raising a Series B and not a Series A in today's market. So I'm willing to take a risk. If I believe that the people are great and the market's great, that they're going to be able to develop a great product and generate traction from that product. So those are that's where I'm that's where I'm more willing to take risk than on the um, I don't like taking people risk. How do you evaluate founders? So at Mavron, we have a scorecard where there's nine characteristics we look for in founders. So a few of those would be knowing the customer inside and out, a great storytelling ability an ability to hire ahead of the curve. I mean, sometimes you look at a, a senior team early and you, you ask yourself, how did they possibly hire those people? And, you know, I think it's a great indicator of their ability to uh, sell the vision. And then I think the other is balancing being visionary with being detail-oriented. Our best founders are able to go from 10,000 feet to the cell of a spreadsheet pretty, uh, pretty seamlessly. So I think we've evolved over the years in how we look at the scorecard. We used to take each of these nine categories, add up the score, and that would be how we'd evaluate a founder. And what we found over the years is our best founders actually have giant spikes in particular areas, which we call superpowers, and they have holes in other, which we, we call fatal flaws. So now we spend less time looking at kind of those aggregate scores, and instead of evaluating, you know, do they have the right superpowers, and are they self-aware around potentially fatal flaws? It's always important to know what your strengths are and weaknesses are, I'd imagine, as a founder, because of course, you then want to hire people that have those complementary skill sets. For sure. And I think there's two, I mean, on the flaw side, there's two things which we can't un- overcome. I think one is a not having a growth mindset. Founders don't need to listen to their investors, but they need to listen. I think that someone who thinks they know everything and isn't willing to change their point of view based on inputs is, is, is typically that's not correlated with success. And the other is just straight up grit. I think it's just really hard to start a company. Every day is a night fight. And the best founders are, I mean, I look at Phil Knight. I look at Howard Schultz. I look at Bill Gates. They have the uh, the fortitude to, to go into battle every day for decades. So those are the two things that are must-haves for us. Once you've invested in a company, what type of uh, cadence of correspondence do you like to see from founders? Does it vary? Oh, totally. I mean, if you've started a company that went public before, it could. I mean, the cadence varies from, you know, we do weekly physical meetings to uh, call me when you need me. I think different founders have different needs. So you need to offer a, a menu of options to attract different founders who have different needs and desires. So I think, um, some founders need mentorship in growing into a CEO role. Uh, others say, you know, the help I need really is to just double click on the strategy and help me get the right people in the chairs around the table. So I think, you know, I think that uh, there's no one size fits all. Given what's happened with WeWork over the past few months, has this changed your behavior and how you think about being founder friendly at Maveron? I mean, founder friendly doesn't mean you don't have governance. I mean, the the main role of the board is to 
determine if the CEO is the right person to move the business forward. And we take that role seriously. I mean, we're looking to, I mean, you know, I think uh, it's incumbent upon every founder to ask themselves, am I the right person to move this business forward and the board as well? So I could think of very few times in the course of my career where we've actually we've actually facilitated any type of a change in the CEO seat. But I think, uh, I think it's important for the board to be stringent around financial controls, to value good governance, to, um, you know, uh, the number of times people, CEOs ask, can I delay the audit uh, is high. And the number of times we say yes to that is low. I think there's just a lot of good governance things that it's incumbent upon a board to do. So I think WeWork is an exception in many ways, but I think that there's a fear in many investors of saying the hard things, especially given a lot of your reputation in the marketplace is on on being founder-friendly, whatever that is. But I think for me, founder-friendly is you're always transparent, you're direct, you're working in service of the company, not in service of the founder or the other investors. You do everything you can to be effective in being of service to the mission of building, of helping the, uh, helping the company grow into its potential. So what are some consumer trends that you're focused on in today's landscape? Beyond having a prepared mind in e-commerce, real estate, and areas of healthcare, I'm not particularly thematic or thesis-oriented in my approach. Instead, I'm really focused on understanding a given market of founders going, uh, of founders appro- uh, addressing, and then what's going to enable a venture scale opportunity to emerge. So I think if uh, if we knew where there were holes in the market, if if we had a defined point of view on where a unicorn could be founded, then we go try to find uh, a founder and and have them start that company. I think I've come to realize over the years that. Uh, that that's not a core strength of ours. I think the core strength of ours is understanding a founder, understanding what they're looking to build, and then uh, understanding the early demand and response from customers in the marketplace, and then pattern matching that to does this look like it has the potential to to achieve a venture style outcome. You've had quite a few D2C investments. How do you think about D2C brands in in the current era with online acquisition costs continuing to rise since there's so much competition for uh, SEM and Facebook ads? You know, I think I think some of the direct to consumer brands we have in our portfolio are, are some of the highest potential companies out there. I mean, back in I think from context, if I look back from 2009 to 2014, there was this golden age where you saw brands like Zulily, Stitch Fix, Wayfair, Chewy's uh, that were able to scale on the back of these emerging digital advertising channels. And today the world's changed. I mean, those channels have become saturated. You know, I have a deep aversion to pouring venture dollars into Facebook and Google's, you know, financial statements on a quarterly basis. So I think that, you know, the best brands of today are spread via word of mouth from their customers. I think there's a number of different strategies. One is you have this incredible press around a skew. Like I think Allbirds was able to do that with the world's most comfortable shoe. I think another is you have this a strategy of, of uh, achieving growth through uh, influencers and social media. I think of a business like Dow's Kill, a fast fashion business in our portfolio that's done that. Uh, there's others where you're adding to people's day-to-day lives in a way where they want to share it with their friends. Uh, we and my, my partner, uh, Anargi invested in a business called CoStar, which is an astrology app that's 
it's growing like gangbusters and it's focused on providing people astrological insights into their day-to-day life. So I think for a bunch of these brands I just mentioned, digital acquisition is a tactic, but more importantly, they need to figure out how do they build their brand to reach their consumers every day. And sometimes it involves reaching them through a Facebook or a Google ad, but I view that today as a tactic. And if that's the strategy, it's not something I'm interested in. When I had David Wu on, he said that, uh, I think he read an article that like 40% of venture dollars go straight to Google and uh, uh, Facebook. What's something that you would change when it comes to venture capital? The arrogance and lack of empathy. For example, we have several companies now that are raising capital. Now, I can't even tell you the number of firms that just ghost a founder instead of sending a polite decline. And it's just bad behavior. Uh, another example is I've sat on, I sat on a board where there was an investor who wouldn't agree to a pay raise for a CEO over five years. Now, this investor at the same time was making tens of millions of dollars in carry dollars and posting pictures of his travels in luxury you know, hotels and other places all over Instagram. I mean, I just don't understand how you, you know, behave in a way which doesn't have any empathy. And I think, I think this industry needs to get better at that. I think the other thing is, you know, we've had a, we've had thankfully a um, increased focus on diversity. But I think that diversity has, you know, instead of just having, you know, uh, I grew up, I mean, my, my dad was a teacher, my mom stayed home. It was a middle-class suburb of Detroit. I think through diversity doesn't mean you have women and people of color who went to Stanford in addition to just white men who went to Stanford. It means that you have people who come from all walks of life, different cultures, different geographies, different backgrounds. And I think our industry suffers from sameness, even when it's ostensibly more diverse than it was, we have a long way to go. Yeah, I think that those are two great points and certainly are things that venture capital has become known for. What's one book that has impacted you uh, personally and one that has impacted you professionally? I mean, I was a sci-fi geek as a kid and I still remember vividly reading things like Ender's Game or Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy or the three body problem recently. So I mean, it's just, it's just a source of joy for me. Professionally, I, I still love Michael Porter's books on strategy. I mean, the, the five forces framework, it feels very MBA-esque, but I, I think what it really points to is, are you spending every venture dollar you raise to widen the size of your moat? Or are you simply growing top line revenue? So I think sometimes if you're uh, approaching making resource allocation decisions just through a product lens. You're ignoring the the business strategy and competitive strategy, which I think ultimately uh, lends itself to to creating equity value. Do you think that entrepreneurs should focus more on maybe in their slide decks Porter's Five Forces analysis of their startup and 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 their competitive position versus maybe like a SWOT analysis? Later on, yes. I think especially as you move into the growth stages. I mean, early on, you're essentially testing a thesis. You have an idea around, you know, how you can use a product or a service to, to change consumers' lives in a meaningful way. And you're trying to understand, do, do consumers actually care? And does the thesis work? So that's the seed and probably the Series A. But I think as you as you move towards your, your, your growth rounds of financing, uh, understanding, you know, what are your competitive moats and, and, and what are you what are you doing to uh, 
to over time to expand those feels very important to me. So I think a, a SWOT analysis is very surface level. I don't think it really gets underneath kind of more of the, the business strategy complexities, but early days, you don't have time for business strategy. You have a thesis, you execute against it, you figure out, you know, you, you go out and it, you, you talk to customers in their homes and you understand, uh, you know, am I having the impact I think I could have with the product or service I'm offering? That makes a lot of sense. So what is your most recent investment and why are you excited about it? I invested in a child development business called Love Every. So I invested behind uh, a founding team. Uh, one of the CEO, Jessica Rolf, started a business that was selling rice cereal, of all things, for kids. Sold it for $230 million to known. And her uh, co-founder, Rod Morris, uh, was a proxy statement level executive at Opower, which is a, a company that went public. So just a very strong senior team. So the founder, Jessica, was raising her kids. And what she realized was that her house was filled with plastic junk. And I could relate because I have three kids of my own. And she had no idea if any of this junk had any educational value in her kids' development. So she started Love Every. And the goal there really was she enlisted some of America's foremost child development experts. She designed play kits and items for young kids that fostered cognitive development. So the product's beautiful. Uh, the customers are thrilled. And what it does is it, it enables you, if you have a six-month-old, to know, here's the things I should buy for my six-month-old and know that that's, that foots with the science around cognitive development that's out there. So, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled about the potential this business has to, you know, one, give parents a guide in a world where they're always nervous about are they making the right decisions and then help more children develop uh, in a in a way that everyone wants, which is according to the um, according to their age, they're doing the things they should be doing. Wow, that's really, really innovative. I'll certainly have to check it out. Um, I don't have any kids of my own yet, but I have plenty of uh, baby cousins that um, I absolutely adore. So I, I, I certainly will have to check that out. They also have the number one selling play mat on Amazon, so uh, or play gym on Amazon. So, uh, so go check that out. It's a great shower gift. Perfect, perfect. What is one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? There's a laundry list, but I think a good example, which, which, which alludes to some of the points I mentioned earlier, is Stitch Fix. So this is a business where Katrina Lake, their CEO and founder, just has very high quality of thought. Um, the other thing which uh, Katrina had done was uh, early on, she built a world-class team. I mean, she had the head of analytics from Netflix. She had the COO, Mike Smith, from Walmart.com. And this was before raising a Series A. I mean, it's rare to find someone with crystal clear quality of thought in a, in a Series B team at a seed stage. So she was focused on apparel. But I think what I got wrong there was I was daunted by the operational complexity of, so you're going to ship product to people at full price and then have them ship a lot of it back. I was, uh, I was daunted by the challenge of doing that. And instead, what I should have said is Katrina is one of the best founders we've met in recent history. Apparel is a really big market. Whether or not the initial go to go to uh, go to market strategy is right, isn't that relevant? Because she has a great team that's going to figure out how to bob and weave and find kind of economic opportunity. And uh, also, her early customers just showed a lot of brand love as you kind of went through social media and kind of read reviews and also looked at kind of early retention numbers. 
So, you know, I'm left in a place where I deeply admire what she built and still regret not investing in it early on. Yeah, I mean, what she's built is is incredible. Jason, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Jason on. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can follow Jason on Twitter at jstofer. That will also be in the show notes. If you'd like to follow along behind the scenes of the show, you can follow me at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, that would be simply terrific. Each review increases the exposure of the show. If there's a question you'd like me to ask a guest or have recommendations for guests for the show, or if you're working on something that's really cool, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to DM me on Twitter. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed, and until next time, 